Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. I am Dean Martin, one of your hosts. Persuadio will be coming up shortly with our recurring most controversial guest. So you will want to stay tuned for that. You can find this and all of the other episodes of the Poker Zoo at persuadio.nl. There's a place there to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or your Android device or any other podcast aggregator. We are at most of the locations available on the great interwebs. Before we get started, I wanted to touch base with Greg Porter and talk a little bit about the Scientific Poker Strategy, the webinar that uh, is available on the website. Top right quarter menu choice. Greg's been getting great reviews on that, and I think you will find it helpful if you would like to improve your own win rate. Um, playing online is a great way to practice now, and uh, hopefully in a few weeks we shall be back uh, live poker again So. Greg, I've seen some really good reviews, uh, good feedback of, of students who have gone through your scientific poker strategy and webinar course. First of all, what's the initial reason for you uh, putting the course together? When I started using solvers to study, I made a lot of mistakes and wasted a lot of time worrying about the wrong things. Scientific poker strategy is intended to help people study more efficiently by avoiding those same mistakes. How would you describe your target student? In other words, who's going to benefit most from the material in this course? The target student is anyone just starting out or struggling to work with the solver and really anyone looking to make their poker study more efficient. I know you, you talk about solver use in this course, but it's not really a solver tutorial. As I saw it, it was more about how to interpret or how to properly use the solver to improve uh, your poker strategy. Am I correct in that assumption? Right. It's not a tutorial on GTO Plus, and I think even users of PioSolver can benefit. There is some time spent in the course on how to build turn and river subtrees in GTO Plus uh, using Flopzilla Pro, but the core of the webinar is my process and methods for study using a solver. You've made the course available, and we have the link at uh, persuadio.nl up in the top right corner. If someone purchases the course and has some additional questions, uh, are they able to uh, contact you after the fact? Yes. I don't want anyone to get stuck and give up due to a technical issue. People can contact me about that or with questions about implementing the process I lay out in Scientific Poker Strategy. All right, Greg. Hey, thanks a lot. And if you would like more information about the course, there is a full sales page uh, full of information at Scientific Poker Strategy. The link is at the top right corner at persuadio.nl. Now is a great time during the quarantine to practice online at some lower stakes and prepare yourself for the upcoming live poker boom about to hit the U.S. when we reopen. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Today's episode should be especially interesting as we are going to be talking to one of our previous guests and one of the most popular guests we have on the zoo programming. He is um, going to talk to us about some behind-the-scenes stuff and maybe get into some hard truths about our industry. So welcome back, the creator of Overnight Monster and popular YouTuber Alvin Lau. Hello, What's going on, man? Oh, nothing. Have you looked around, read the paper? 
Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting new world lately, I have to say, since we last talked. Things are uh, a lot different, maybe in the last six months. Uh, definitely a lot different in the last two weeks. So um, I'll have to say what has been most interesting so far is that it seems that the state of the poker industry is rapidly evolving with the presence of coronavirus. And it seems that in many ways, poker is getting a lot easier because there's been such a wild influx of what I assume are recreational live cash game players playing effectively the, sim the stakes that they're used to playing live online now and then finding that those games are much, much harder. So it's been, <laughs> it's been a very profitable few weeks to say the least. Right. Everybody is talking about that. How are how have your students been doing? How, how have you have you been doing? What's what's it look like in the streets? Um, I think it's Ben Sulsky who once said in a video where he was playing like 50 no limit. So stakes that are significantly below what Ben is used to playing. And he says one of the best things about playing the low stakes games is that every session is an adventure. Right? It's full of crazy cartoon characters. It's hack and slash. You have no idea what's gonna what's gonna happen. Sometimes it's very like street poker. And I kind of just have that sense in uh, whenever I sit down at like zone uh, to play at just like uh, some exhibition for my students when I'm sitting on, down in my own private app games. It seems like <laughs> it seems like it's just like really wild and every session is uh, an adventure, which is also really good because usually when it's very wild, it doesn't mean that it's also very solid, right? Everyone says, oh, GTO and et cetera, et cetera. It's so solid. It's so boring. Yeah, but uh, playing really, really solid right now is definitely where the money is when everyone is just trying to splash really, really hard. Now... This is going to go on for a while based on just the general consensus of things. Do you see poker playing like this for the equal amount of time that the quarantine is going on? Or do you already see signs that it might be slowing down? Well, at some point, some of these guys are going to go broke or they're going to have to move down. Um, it hasn't really been slowing down. Now, a lot of the games I play are against international players. And so I also play at a stakes where a bunch of the players are probably semi-professionals or professionals. And so those kind of players actually don't really go busto because they just feed off of the worst regs. Um, but I say, I'd say that this influx has been pretty steady, and I think it's going to last for a while. Um, I definitely know that my own coaching business in the last three weeks has also really exploded. And so there's just been a huge, huge influx suddenly of students and people who are purchasing my product, um, despite me having stepped back significantly from video production in the last couple months. Like at one point, I think I was cranking out two videos a week, and now I'm down to like one every two to three weeks, right? So despite having uh, stepped back, it seems that there seems to be a lot of players who are still really interested in learning um, the, the ins and outs of online poker right now. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because it seems like every part of the coaching industry is reacting and that people are there. I mean, who are the people who are looking for your help and others' help and what's going on out there? Because... Um, you're doing well, Rio lowered its prices, um, Sulfur Y lowered its prices and offered a homeschool thing, which got a lot of attention. Uh, what's your take on the, on the current spot for the industry? I think 
most poker products are divided into three different and pretty distinctive tiers in terms of their audiences. I think for Rio and the four-figure upswing products, those are primarily focused towards semi-professional and professional players who have uh, a comfortable uh, level of experience with Pio Solver or GTO Plus and GTO in general and really can benefit from studying the really nuanced ins and outs of GTO theory, which I would say lower level players will have difficulty absorbing and even more difficulty executing. I think that there's this middle-ish tier, which I put myself in, where it's the, it's where it's the tier where you're trying to convince live and online players that the road is game theory, right? It's basically trying to teach money ball to all the non-believers. And so a lot of my YouTube channel, I play against like opponents who I obviously am going to have a gigantic edge over, not so much to demonstrate, oh, that I can beat 50 no limit. It's to demonstrate that I can beat 50 no limit using extremely reproducible mathematical concepts. You know what I mean? Um, and then I think that there is this bottom tier where it's, I've read enough poker to understand the basic math terminology, and now I want to get a grasp of what strategy looks like. I think the main problem with this lowest tier is that uh, so far from what I can tell, none of the players who coach on this lowest tier are big winners themselves. And so very often I think their strategy is extremely questionable. While very often when you have players who are the elite tier are obviously you know, millionaire winners and players at least in, in the medium tier, um, you know, you can't teach solver work and lie, right? I always say, you know, the good thing about training under me is that you can tell when I'm full of bullshit because the solver is going to disagree with me. And so if I give you all of this advice and you can go to the pile solver and says, hey, pile solver says everything is different, right? It's inexcusable. And so the good thing about like the middle tier, at least, is that all of that work is very verifiable, right? And at least you assume that at the elite tier, it's verifiable in terms that, you know, those players have been vetted, they're well-known regulars, you know, OTB, Canoe, et cetera. So I think that's really where the industry is right now. And like... I think a lot of players obviously are going to be flocking towards this lowest tier because theoretically it's the lowest hanging fruit and it's also the cheapest. So very often you'll get this very, this mediocre strategy that will make you lose less, maybe make you be a small winner at, at these very like small stakes online games. But very rarely are you able to study anything from the bottom tier and then actually be able to jump into the games and be a winning player. So, fair enough. Now you have reached some milestones, and there's, you know, we're going to talk about some things today that are important. Um, <laughs> how do you feel your coaching has gone? Who do you compare yourself to? I mean, you've just mentioned where you feel like you are, but we also know you 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 had to start from scratch, and you measured yourself in in some respects due to other sites like you know, Redship or other things. How, where are you mentally? How do you feel about everything that, how it's gone? Well, it's funny because a lot of my business started, I think I've, I've mentioned this from uh, being banned from Redship Poker and then I realized, oh wow, I got banned and that's because my strategy is just better than theirs and they're kind of embarrassed about this. And that kind of really inspired me to kind of like start my own, uh, my own business and my own 
uh, YouTube grind, as it were. And I'm very happy because I think in the last two or three days, I actually now have more subscribers than Red Chip Poker. And so I've, uh, I guess, accomplished in a little less than a year what took them about five years to build. So I'm pretty happy about that because it's just me. <laughs> I don't have any customer service team, don't have a sales team, don't have a graphic designer, uh, don't have an audio designer. I just do all this shit in-house. And so I've, you know, been teaching myself DaVinci Pro and Audacity and just kind of like building up my skill set. And that's actually been by far the most satisfying part of this business is just being able to learn the skills of how to be an online entrepreneur. Um, For sure. Yeah. And so I've been really satisfied with that. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be my harshest critic. And definitely when new, you know, high-end products come out, I see those and I'm like, hmm, what are my own deficiencies in terms of a coach? What are concepts that I have not um, explored enough with my own students that I need to uh, re-explore? And so definitely in the last year, and particularly in the last few months, I've been slowly re-editing almost all of my coursework. And I think I've, mm, I've probably put up 60% new material since I've started, mostly to reflect the fact that in 18 months of sitting in front of a solver, I've uh, developed uh, a lot as a player and I really need my own technology to be reflecting that at all times. Yeah, I think those of us who follow you noticed your slight absence. Um, who who inspired you to, to rethink things? What happened? I mean, I know the, the Canoe course came out um, the Asabato book came out in the last year. What what is the process where you by which you reevaluate yourself? I th I think a lot of the actual line work that I recommend is going to be the same. It's you know the idea that I should be betting depolarized in many spots is not really ever going to change, right? Because these are mathematical givens. And so a lot of my development has kind of changed in the, in the macro understanding of poker. And ugh, I always feel so bad saying, oh, like, I'm working on my eagle's eye, because that is such an abstract thing to say, right? That's like, oh, you know, I'm getting better at creative writing by reading more books. What does that really mean? But I think that my overall conceptual understanding of poker and like how to maximally exploit players changes a lot over time. I think one uh, good example is if you look mass population data, it'll tell you that in some spots you should always bluff here on an earlier street because that's going to be immediately profitable. And one of the problems is when you use Pile Solver is that it never takes loss leading plays. That is, it never takes a play on an earlier street that sacrifices EV in order to try to recuperate it on future streets. But that is actually something that is very powerful against humans, right? Very often, if we say check back the turn, they're going to misplay a bunch of rivers because they've never faced this situation while we faced it much more often. And so sometimes um, I think in an earlier version of me, rabbit holes a little too much into taking the immediate uh, and like obvious kind of auto profiting spots, not realizing that even better, 
is to take a slight loss leader to recuperate that on future streets, um, and then also at the same time becoming less uh, exploitable at, in the same time. So for example, if I'm always just blasting on the turn, right, that is very effective until people realize what I'm doing, right? Once people start playing back at me with, you know, uh, or if they just don't even wait for theoretically good hands to play back at me, if they just decide to play street poker and I don't recognize it, I might get into trouble. But then there's times where I might check back the turn more often, take a little less money on my auto profit non-showdown winnings, but then I recuperate that money by far by being able to value bet and bluff much more confidently on the river. And so stuff like that is just very nuanced and it's, you have to have an extreme amount of confidence in your own game to be able to recognize, oh, I think I'm gonna intentionally take a little less money here because I think I'm gonna make a little more uh, on a future street. And to be able to do that accurately, I think is, is difficult, but that's something that I, I guess I'm working on very slowly. And that's, you know, when you reach a certain level of study, the only improvements you make are gonna be small improvements to your game, right? And the idea being, you know, if I'm playing 100 no limit and, and I take whatever play that sacrifices 1% of EV or 1.5% of EV, I mean, that's only cents on the dollar. If I move up to 25.50 or 50.100, right, and I'm playing $10,000 pots, well, that 1% uh, degradation in EV now actually becomes significant from a dollar standpoint, right? And so then making those kind of small changes in execution is going to be really, really important. Also, like... In my own private game, or not my private game, my own personal, like, internal game, I don't really simplify 100% in any scenario, right? There's probably some spots where, theoretically, I bet maybe 97% of my range or 95% of my range. And just internally, I know what that 5% of my range is, and then I can play that accurately on future streets. Who knows if I'm balanced in, in, in any way in those kind of spots. But I'm trying to basically just add as many opportunities as possible into my game where I still know where I am in my hand and I am not going to be able to fuck up, you know, no matter what I do. But my opponents are just going to see more randomness on their end. And so they're going to be fucking up much more often. So, so could we summarize your, your change as improvements in your heuristics? I check more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, cool. I mean, I think... Yeah, it's kind of hard to summarize, right? No, that, I think that it's was just, a beautiful one. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it honestly, is just getting just a little, just 0.5 percent sharper street to street, right? And just every formation. So. Okay, so one more follow up on that. As you move up, because I think as money flows in, games get bigger. You might have mentioned to me that Ignition's play, offering bigger games. Is your volume going to go down? Do you advise players to play less volume and, and focus more on the table at hand, or does it matter? That's hard. I definitely will say that when I two-table versus four-table, even at the low stakes, I see my non-showdown winnings suffer. That sometimes has to do with me just playing more solidly and not trying to make moves on people. I could kind of justify it in that way. But I really think I'm just being a little lazier and just being a little less attentive. And especially because I personally play a style where I try to, th where I, I prioritize 
conserving mental energy in as many spots as possible, right? So many spots are automatic for me that I don't really have to think about them. And despite having so many quote unquote automatic plays, clearly I'm slipping somewhere, right? So I think if you're very, very good and you lose whatever fraction of your talent when you add another table, add in more tables. If you are, you know, a mediocre or a small winner, like a three to five big blind or five to seven big blind winner in your game, yeah, probably playing two tables and really, really focusing is really important. Now, I'm also saying zone tables, so that's 300 hands an hour. So maybe, you know, if you're playing regular tables, I think four tables is fairly standard, and then eight tables is going to be a little bit more of a stretch, right? So Fair enough. So that's your internal game. That's what you've been working on. But the we're not all rational creatures, not entirely. <laughs> and uh, dealing with the outside... I mean, you mentioned the thing with RC RCP. Yeah, I don't think they were quite up to your to the standards of your teaching. But it was also difficult personally, and maybe you weren't without blame in terms of that. Um, we could talk about that, but I'd rather ask a more pointed question to you, in that you took uh, something of a shot at J Lil. Uh, I call him J Lil. I just said it on air. Jonathan Little. Um, <laughs> I call him J Lil too. That's kind of funny. That's hilarious. Like he's a rapper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we'll see if we have to edit that. Hopefully we don't. Um, but you pulled down the video, and could you speak to why you did that, and maybe, maybe more importantly, to the broader issue of friction as a coach with other coaches in the community and in the industry? Sure. Um, I've actually thought about this a lot on my own of why did I take down that video. I actually took down a couple of videos that some were just strategy related where I thought I was just giving away a little bit too much. Um, I think, like, let's say I came out with a video today where I just shit on Red Chip Poker or Split Suit or some of these other kind of guys who I consider to be at the very bottom tier of studying. It doesn't really accomplish anything, and I think the problem is I've reached a point in my own game and my own career where that's just bullying, right? I'm just like, yo, this guy's a fish. Everyone knows he's a fish. It's not that. It's not that important, I guess. I think that when I'm swinging upwards, it makes more sense. For example, it, uh, I'm definitely never taking down the video where Matt Berkey takes a shot at me and I take a shot back because one, I'm very proud of the video editing of that. It's it's uh, <laughs> one of my, it's one of my uh, my crea my creative gems, um, but also like you know like swinging upwards or swinging across at people who I think should know better uh, is something that I take. Uh, it's not that I take pride in it, but it's something I'll never shy away from. But you know when these guys are at this point where you know like Red Chip Poker has made their their bed of being this kind of low stakes exploitative and they're never going to really move up and learn modern technology, right? We've seen that they had their GTO course and it's, it's laughable, right? There's nothing, there's nothing in there that will actually teach you anything about GTO, right? It, you, you learn a couple, um, what, toy games that probably have no real relevance and that were already uh, explored in other kind of materials, right? The mathematics of poker. If you just read that, you don't never need to, to get that. Neither does the mathematics of poker or the red chip course teach you anything about like practical play over the board, like how to depolarize a flop, 
right? And like, so if you don't learn any of those kind of like practical elements of GTO, it's just completely worthless. It's just, you know, a bunch of more mathematical abstractions to just add to your pile of complex ideas that make you play horribly. Um, and so I think that most of my discussion and most of my friction and disagreements should be with other players who are studying GTO and mostly focusing on like the philosophical differences, right? Obviously, I don't have like a personal problem with any of these people. Half these people I've actually never even met, right? It's more that I think that their ideas are not very good or just too overly complex or overly simple, right? There's this, there's this perfect medium ground in poker where you prioritize the critical information. And if you add too much information to your stack, you just kind of get confused. And if you have too little information in your stack, you just don't make the right play, right? So, yeah. Well, haven't you sort of answered for them by saying this, what they might say to you in response is that not everything works for everyone. People get introduced to the solver or they get introduced more slowly. <laughs> um, you've had students, for instance, that just you couldn't help. So have I. And yet somehow another program works for them, even if it isn't as advanced as your own. What, what would you say to that sort of every person has a different way argument? I don't know if I believe in that. <laughs> okay. I think, I think I used to believe in that in terms of poker because I thought of poker more as kind of a mixture of a technological and creative art form. But now I think it's just so cut and dry that it's squabbling between, you know, is it better to learn multiplication using marbles or to use a table on, on a chalkboard? You know what I mean? Like, in the end, multiplication is still multiplication, right? Like, using these kind of uh, simplifications or heuristics is going to be fairly true regardless of who you study under in some senses, um, which is also what is very frustrating um, about GTO in one sense is that you're all looking at the same information and so th there's a natural cap to how much edge you can take over an opponent, especially over time when you know your opponent can just look at the technology you're using and then imitate you. Um, but I think... This idea that, oh, yeah, there's people have like different kind of like learning styles and yeah, that's kind of true. And it's also kind of bullshit. What I found is that the players who make it, they really want to make it and they play poker to win at poker. And the people who don't make it are genuinely the players who just don't want it enough and they play poker to be good at poker. And so this is like a huge difference, right? So when you teach GTO, one of the big things is, this is always the straw argument is, oh, you should never play exactly like GTO. And to anyone who says that, I'm just like, okay, cool. That was on the flyer to the school, okay? We all know we don't play exact GTO. Will you stop with a stupid straw man? Right, like especially when you know, like for example, like uh, whatever, like Nick Howard or whatever said, oh, you know, you should do X and Y more than GTO. Yes, we all know this, right? We know, no one plays exactly like the robot. Can we please move on from that discussion and have something a little more kind of advanced, right? Um, and so the students all have pile solver, right? And so theoretically, all of them, given the theoretical data, should be able to make it or not. And some crash and burn horribly. I think the 
the biggest thing, again, is the players who make it, they take Pile Solver, they get this kind of baseline of GTO, right? They spend a lot of time invested in how can I extract the most money from the opponents I'm playing. Sometimes that comes from doing extra like population analysis. Sometimes a lot of this is just having a better sense of, you know, how to exploit once you have the baseline GTO and see what your opponent is responding. Um, but a lot of players, they take this GTO stuff and then that is their final form. They don't understand that GTO is the baseline, not the conclusion. And so then they're like, oh, I'm going to play this like super balanced strategy. And then most of their time is just spent in like pure memorization. And then they just naturally get really, really confused because they've lost sight of the ball. And so a lot of the students that I have that fail, they want to play poker so they can show me good hand histories and have me be proud of them. They really care about my feedback. They, these are players who are like, oh, I took this line because I wanted to be really balanced. And when you're playing against a fish, well, you should never be balanced. And so then I keep thinking, what is it that they're actually doing, right? And it's that they're playing poker to play good poker, to have good hand histories. But that's not how you should play, right? You should play poker to take a dude's shirt off from him and then wave it in his face and be like, yo, I got your shirt. What are you going to do about it, right? You should humiliate and destroy your opponents. And when you have that attitude that, hey, I'm here to take all of your money, that kind of attitude gets the money when it's inspired then with all of the kind of uh, theoretical underpinnings. But when you just study Pile Solver to study Pile Solver and not to actually accumulate cash instead of information, yeah, you don't get any better. And so there are some players who I can give them every theoretical secret in the world and all that's going to do is just make their stack really really thick and they're ne never still going to learn what is the most critical information to take money out of the dude's pocket and then there's other guys who i often think will make it by themselves without me who when they sit down and look at pile solver all they think about is how am i going to annihilate the next guy right that's where the the, the difference is i think there has to be a certain level of narcissism involved as well Right? Even Michelle Obama talks about how her husband ha it has some narcissism and how important it is for the president of the United States to have a little bit of narcissism, which is a little bit strange to say in the current era we're living in, but that's another time. And so <laughs> when you play poker, right? poker, especially at the mid-stakes or the high stakes, is very much about game selection. It's about understanding where you are in the predatory circle of life, right? I don't sit at tables where I do not think I have an edge, period. Call me a coward, right? And, you know, my fix of that is then thinking, is then working on my technology so that I do have an edge at nearly every table I sit in, right? But when you're at, like, the mid-stakes or low stakes and you're, you know, evaluating, should I sit in this 5-10 game, you really need to be aware of how good you are, right? You need to be able to confidently say, I'm good enough to crush this table and be right about that. And you also need to have the humility to say, if I sit at this table, I'm going to get wrecked and I'm not going to learn that much. That is also something that is going to be uh, really critical to your long-term survival. And so besides just having the, the, the winning mindset, right, you have to have the simultaneous narcissism to have faith in yourself, to be able to go out and study all of these things and crush. And you still have to have the humility of a student and saying, wow, look how many things I don't know. 
right? Look how much more room I have to grow. Look how much stronger these guys are. I better stay the fuck away from them. So the combination of that winning attitude, that genuine sense of self-awareness, and then pile solver are really the three critical things that you need to improve. And if you have only two of the three, I don't really think that you'll make it all the way, right? And if you don't have pile solver, you just don't make it. That, that's, actually a, that's actually a lie. I actually worked with a student who was playing like 300, 600, and 500, 1,000. And so he's like, yo, can I have a, a lesson? And I was like, why do you want a lesson from me? I don't understand. But <laughs> what he told me is, actually, I've never used a solver before. I play against all these opponents who use solvers, and I mostly just copy what they do, and I talk to them so I kind of understand the internal metagame that's going on there. But I've never used a solver myself. I'd love to learn how to use it for the first time. That kind of really blew me away. So in one sense, that guy didn't have a solver, but he was also copying all of the same tactics that really, really high-level solver players were using. Um, so besides that one notable exception, <laughs> yeah, if you don't have a solver, you're not going to make it. Well, I'd hate to, to sort of curtail that epic rant without uh, <laughs> by going into that detail, but I'm going to in the sense, this is a poker program. Um, what does that say about poker, that if someone can merely copy and talk to someone who's an expert at a solver and do well, is, is there anything to be inferred there? I, I'm not sure. I was actually really, really surprised okay. when I first heard this. I mean, like, when I first started joining creative writing competitions, the way I succeeded was, was just blatantly copying the voice and style of other people. Almost to the point of like what, what uh, like near plagiarism, what you call in rapping, like biting someone's style, right? Like I just bit people extraordinarily hard, but I bit them so hard that by the time I started moving into my own kind of uh, explorations, I knew what all the fundamentals looked like, right? So in the same way, if you just watch Life's Love forever and ever, and I've done that, right? Like I have so many Linus Love hands in my in my database that I stare at. You learn a lot about his approach without ever without ever having to look at a solver, simply because you can see how he categorizes his hands. And so, if you are extraordinarily rigorous with hold'em manager, in one sense, if you are only analyzing the best play players in the world, yeah, you will get a sense of how to play very very. Um, strong poker. At the same time, this is also a player who probably doesn't sit against every super high stakes reg, right? And so while this is a player who has made it to those highest levels, he also admits very openly, he will not just sit nakedly against any of these uh, super elite solver players. So, you know, so maybe that's the, the grain of salt to that story. Nice. Well, we'll, we'll move on to something else that I'm very keen on. Um, although I should notice that if you were paying attention to a lot of meat on the bone there, but uh, you, you took down the Jonathan Little video because he wouldn't want to punch down, which I find very funny. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about uh, coaching for profits. Now, I've interviewed several coaching for profit profits players. It's caused um, some increase in my li listenership. Not that I care so much about that, but that means that people do care about this. And you were interested in that. Could you start with... Um, well, what did you do to get started and oh boy. Uh, take it from there? So a bunch of people had approached me for coaching for profits. And so I had previously done it 
back when I was coaching at Card Runners. I took on one student, and um, needless to say, it went really, really well. I, when I took him on, I basically knew he was going to make it. He was at the time like a winning 50 no limit player. He had the drive. He had like a really uh, strong uh, career as a professional Magic the Gathering player. And so those are the kind of players who are going to make it again no matter what. He could have found any reasonable coach you know, besides from me, and that guy would have ended up a millionaire. And now he is uh, a millionaire living on a tropical beach somewhere. So that story went really well. More recently, I was like, okay, cool, let me try something similar. And I wanted to take on four students uh, at, at simultaneously to do this kind of like group coaching and see if I could just like take a pod of relatively inexperienced players and then just push them through the, you know, like the 50, 100 no limit uh, online uh, ranks so they could get to 200 no limit. And effectively, once you're a very solid 200 no limit regular you know, the the world is your oyster in the sense that you should have the experience to develop all your own talents from there. You know how to use Pile Solver. You know how to do uh, data analysis. You have enough discipline as a player to be able to have faith in your own execution after you analyze things. Um, and I was completely wrong, right? This was a, the a horrible, failed, huge waste of my time where I just lit a bunch of money on fire in terms of opportunity cost. So let me let's talk about so let's talk about why. First, I had one uh, one student um, screen snipe another student and play hands against them while we were on a Skype group. Had to kick that guy out for obvious reasons, and the other people in the pod did not feel comfortable with the guy who was sitting against them as they were playing. So that was a huge disaster, and that is kind of an act of God. I can't really avoid when people want to do really really stupid things like cheat openly, right? So okay. Two more guys I thought were very smart players, right? Smart guys. One of them, again, had a, you know, a very strong Magic the Gathering career. And I thought, okay, these guys are relatively new 25 No Limit regulars. These games are really easy as well, right? You can beat these games for 15 to 20 big blinds per 100. So I thought, oh, yeah, this will be really easy to get them there. And it was not at all. I honestly just thought I gave them all of the, the simple plays, right, um, that really just print the money. All the spots where you should three bet really obviously, the hands that you should depolarize, how you should mix back. And it just didn't seem to work. And, and this was kind of shocking to me because often I feel that once you just incorporate like one or two pre-flop concepts and one or two flop and turn concepts, then the money really starts to come in rapidly. Right? Because your opponent just can't stop the onslaught of the pre-flop and then bet the flop. I was wrong. I think a lot of the problem was, one, despite how much money people picked up by playing the flop and turn correctly, they just dumped it all on the turn of the river. Right? So, that's, so despite having all of these automatic assurances and you know, money locked in, that money still can get burnt. Two, discipline was much more important than I realized. Mm. For me, when I play... I just don't tilt, right? The times where I press a button and I press call and I didn't want to press call, but I pressed it anyways, I sit out. I'm done, right? Because I, I play at what I hope to think is a professional caliber of play. If I know something is wrong and I press the incorrect button anyways, it's time for me to sit out, right? So it's very often difficult for me to just blast off a bunch of buy-ins because I'm like, oh, Right? The moment I realize my discipline is waning, that's probably not a time where I should be betting $1,000 at a time. 
this is not the case when players are playing 25 no limit. First, for some of these guys, the money is just not that important, right? One of my students is, a, you know, like uh, some of these guys are millionaires. 25 no limit, 50 no limit. It's really easy for them to just one day after work have a drink and just decide to splash. It's fun, right? Splashing around <laughs> in poker is really fun. I love running crazy bluffs and just crossing my fingers and holding my anus. But that's not how you play at a professional level. Wait, and wait, so I, wait, wait, wait. You just slipped in that one of these players was a millionaire. Why is he doing coaching for profits with you? He just wants to, he just loves the game and just wants to get better at it. Well, why can't he just hire you as a coach and have him play? You know, why does he play? Why, why is he in your coaching for profits program, really? I, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. This is the, oh, and this is the guy who I kicked out for cheating. Ah. So that's, un that's unbelievable, really. So, yeah, so let's wonder why the millionaire was trying to snipe someone else playing 25 no limit. Do you know what I mean? Right, so I, I, have, I have no idea, <laughs> right? I also didn't realize all of these things until after, uh, you know, afterwards. Um, what, where were we before this? We were, we were getting into the... Oh, discipline. Why discipline. this program is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so... Mental game, really. Yeah, yeah. I was explaining to my friend who plays Magic... You need to treat how you play 25 no limit or 50 no limit every hand as you would treat playing every play at a professional level uh, Magic the Gathering tournament where every hand or every decision has stakes. They matter, right? And in poker, especially because you see such incredible volume, it's very easy to lose that sense of priority. And so just like the other day, I played a session where I, I, you know, I played like 700 hands and won like 50, buy, 50 big blinds, 50 buy-ins, Jesus, 50 big blinds. And then I looked back at my hands and I realized the two mistakes I made were for 30 big blinds and 40 big blinds, right? And so despite having a win rate that I was, you know, should just be happy to book for the session, when I look at each individual mistake, despite it only being one hand, it's, they're often worth 50%, 60% of my entire win rate for the session. And so very often when players don't have that extraordinary discipline, a lot of the times they are simply just spewing 30, 40% of their entire win rate at a time, not realizing that it's making such a profound impact, right? There are some guys who are otherwise technically very proficient players who just randomly spaz two or three times a session. They just can't help it, right? And that ends up making them break even players when they could probably be 10 big blind per 100 winners. Right? There are definitely players who I think are very, very strong players. And then finally, when they, I look in their database, and I'm like, wait, why are you not crushing it? It's because just randomly, they just tilt off a buy-in like every like 4,000 hands. And that doesn't sound like a lot. right? But one buy-in every 4,000 hands is a 2.5 big blind per 100 difference in your win rate. That's astronomical. right? But that's only one hand of tilt in what, what 4,000 hands is like, I don't know, 12 hours or something like that. Right? Like, not tilting one hand in 12 hours is very, very difficult, right? And so learning that skill, the skill of execution, is arguably more important than any theoretical gains that you can make. And unfortunately, a lot of the times, you can't teach that skill of execution, right? It's, uh, what does Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a great plan until they get punched in the face, right? Everyone has a great plan until they get four bet four times in a row. Right? And they're like, oh, suddenly all your plans go out the window and now you got to do new stuff. That's not how this works, right? Especially when you learn game theory. And so, yeah, I think that is maybe the unsung downfall 
that I need to be able to insulate my students from somehow. I don't know if that's adding, like suggesting meditation, which I know Charlie Carell does. I, I mean, I personally meditate as well. Um, I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to fix tilt, honestly, because in my mind, tilt is just like throwing a baby. It's, it's like throwing a temper tantrum. It's just being a baby, right? Like tilt for me, it's in my mind. It's this feeling that says I'm going to spite press call or raise here when I know I should press fold. It's a physical feeling in me, right? And so I can just realize, oh, I'm throwing a tantrum. I'm done, right? When you can't recognize that and you tilt and then you keep tilting and you don't recognize that again and again, 0% chance you're going to be able to make it as a winning semi-professional player. So. so you're sort of answering for me one of my questions because another CFP program run by Nick Howard, he spends a lot of time on mental game. It's really important to him. Is is do you see why that might be? Am I am I correct in make drawing a line between your experience and his? So at the same so this is the first time that I've I've probably dealt with students who have such huge tilt issues. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that these are smaller stakes players that I'm used to normally taking on. Right? I really want like I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that I can just teach anyone from scratch how to be a great player. Right. <laughs> Right. I think that I can teach, like, you know, like, I, like the girl I'm dating, I'm like, I can teach you poker if you want it. She's like, no, you can't. I'm like, yeah, I think, you, I, think I can. Maybe I can't, <laughs> right, is the, <laughs> is the conclusion that I should reach from this. But so very often, and this is going to be a change in my coaching requirements, is when I take on guys who are winners at 100 no limit, and they want coaching to just simply make sure that they never are not winning, those guys always make it. They have this baseline amount of discipline being, you know, a 50 no limit crusher or a small 100 no limit crusher that usually the fixes in their discipline are very small, right? With this coaching for profits program uh, with one of these players, I had him have a negative 20 and then a negative 30 buy in downswing and a 25 no limit, right? So <laughs> also the other guy who I took on who was a magic player had never played poker seriously in his life. He'd watched me play a lot. He'd played like, you know, some tournaments, but never like took it seriously. So he was also probably a candidate for failure in many ways. Although I thought, again, you know, he's smart. He's my friend. I can make him get there. I could not. Right. On the flip side, however, I, there was one student uh, out, of the, out of the four. And maybe this is a, a fantastic uh, success rate is that he started off as an extremely break-even or maybe slightly losing 25 no limit player. And now I confidently think that he'll be able to move through the ranks very quickly. He gets it, right? Things are starting to click. He's you know, moving up to 50 no limit, beating it. Gonna move up to 100 now that they have the 100 no limit games. Should not be a problem because you know, I don't think any of the games below 200 are particularly difficult you know, if for a GTO practitioner, as it were. Right, most black wizards should be able to beat the small online mystics games, um, and I will have to say the biggest thing for him has been being tilty and then reining it back. So he definitely had, a, I think, uh, like a week where he was like plus twenty-four buy-ins, and then the next week was like negative twenty-five buy-ins or negative twelve at a higher limit. And I was like, what's going on? And just kind of tilt issues. But then as those tilt issues have vanished, as he has more faith in his system and his own ability then you clearly see those things vanish and his, you know, his win rate is now skyrocketing. So, so pluses and minuses. But yeah, I think that the lesson I've learned is I can give everyone the theory 
It's really can they can they execute it? I've joked with you over Skype many times. The biggest complaint that I have from my students is, I'm not following any of your advice and I'm losing. What should I do? Yes. <laughs> and, and I just facepalm. I'm like, do you want to try doing the thing that I suggested? Right? It's kind of, it's amazing how 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 easy that is. Like uh, Phil, who also got banned from Redship, he was. <laughs> Phil, and I, I, I hate to spill the bag against his, the players who play against them, but Phil beats his private game to something stupid, okay? I'm talking like 50-plus big blinds per hundred, right? These are one of those classic games where it's a, everyone is playing way above their pay grade, and there's one professional player in that game, right? And so Phil said, you know, I'm crushing these guys so hard, I decided that I want to play more exploitatively. Right? I have all these notes on them. I think I know how to play them. And so he was just like, okay, cool. I want to go for 70 big blinds per 100, to which I laughed, of course. And then his results were the exact opposite. He didn't start losing, of course, because he has such a huge edge, but he found that his edge against them plummeted significantly. And when we looked back, he was like, yeah, I felt like I was getting run over a little bit more. Wasn't, I didn't have such good control. And then he was just like, yeah, I just went back to doing the really simple shit. And then they just started dying to 60 big blinds per 100 or something stupid. And, I'm just, and then I rolled my eyes and I was like, isn't this just another case of should have just stuck with the, the solid plan in the first place, right? Hard to argue with that. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, what's next for you? What's, uh, what's on the program? You've hinted at several things in the past, but I'm, I'm not sure what okay. it is. Well, I have to admit that a lot of my plans have been completely disbanded because of the coronavirus. Um, a lot of my March through June plans were actually going to be uh, intending to spend a lot of time in Los Angeles, chasing some of my creative pursuits, and mostly trying to play just as much poker as I could, uh, hopefully at the Commerce and over at Live at the Bike. Um, but live poker is suddenly extinct. I don't know when it's going to come back. And I also don't know how comfortable I feel playing even after the immediate reopening. You know, right before the quarantine, there was like a local 3K charity, like a 3K buy-in, a 3K rebuy that I really wanted to play that had a lot of like charity uh, entrance. So people who didn't have to actually pay the 3K to sit in and play. And very often, you know, <laughs> when a guy is free rolling into a tournament, that guy is not going to be playing nearly as tough as everyone else who's, you know, spent 3K to pony up. And so I even skipped that event despite it probably being, you know, 200% ROI simply because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a paranoid sucker. Uh, so I'm, so I'm kind of at this strange point where if I look to play in the, the largest open facing online games, like if I try to move over to like America's card room to try to play against OTB red Baron and Linus love, I'm going to run into trouble, right? I'm at this point where I'm still aware of how much better my opponents are than I, right? When I still watch the strongest players playing, I'm like, oh, I would have never done that. And so when I'm still in awe of all of these players, how can I crush them? How can I crush people who have a battle aura over me? At the same time, when I play against the average like 2-4 guy, I'm not very challenged. Right, especially because I play in like softer games than the usual public-facing games. Right, these guys are often you know rich recreational players who are, are splashing. Those guys don't really per don't give me a challenge, and so I'm really at this point where I can either bone up my knowledge base and build up my bankroll to get murdered at the highest stakes. I assume, right? 
or I can just sit here fairly stress-free in a very anxious time and just grind these stakes where it's pretty easy to just be like, okay, I made 500 bucks today. I made a grand today. I made 500 bucks today. And just keep repeating that and just being really happy and very comfortable, right? Not like I'm spending any money when I'm fucking sitting in my apartment for 28 hours a day somehow. Well, you're, uh, you're arguing for the easy life. Um, but I guess what I would say is when the time comes, yeah, you do have to go up and pay your dues. We all we all do, and we all did, and we'd love we'd love to see you battle it out with Is it? big names. I, I don't think people have had to pay their dues against the biggest names, right? <laughs> they all talk. They all talk about it. I mean, really? I just yeah. I just interviewed Andrew Seidman, who was a high stakes player back in the day. Wrote a book. He's had a whole life in poker. Yeah, and yeah. He, uh, he's, isn't he beluga whale? Yeah, yeah. And he's he a, helps he's help. A legend, the legend of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he said, you know. He went up and he played Jungle Man and he got slaughtered. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's a great story. But you, if you don't take that shot, you know, how do you really know? And I, and I don't say this randomly. It's because you mentioned, you said how important it is to be a little narcissistic. And uh, I guess we'd like to see your narcissism in action. Yeah. And so that's also why I think that, like, I want to play high stakes at live at the bike. <laughs> right so and, and so this, this is like you know it's the same way i'm just like yeah i don't i don't i don't shit on jay little because it's like swinging below me against the high stakes players against katya right against you know all of these random russians who i've i don't know what their real names are right god i'm gonna get i know i'm gonna get uh, into trouble urasov right like he's one of the high stakes crushers god those guys are really good Right? And, and, and the, the way I know they're good is that I look at their line work, I put it into Pile Solver, and I'm like, I would have never done that, and Pile Solver agrees. So they just know something I don't know. Right? And so I am going to reach a point where I am not as impressed, and then that is going to be the time where I'm much more happy to pay my dues, as it were. Um, but so like, I think right now I'm much more interested in that intersection where the stakes are meaningful to me, the challenge is meaningful to me, and I'm not going to get fucking blown out of the water. And I think maybe playing, you know, 10, 20 or 25, 50 at live at the bike is that kind of perfect intersection where, you know, I lose five, 10, 20 grand, it, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world in those kind of games. The games are probably like intellectually interesting for me. And again, there's no chance where I'm just going to be, you know, uh, put in a, stupid spot every single hand and just have no idea what I'm going to do and then just dump my entire stack, right? Because like when you're playing against very good players, that is the feeling that you get is that literally in every spot you are going to be facing the mix-up and you just don't know what to do at any decision point, right? right. When yeah. you play against, uh, I don't think I've ever played against a single live player who gives me that feeling so far, right? Well, and you, you really can't. The live culture is just so different. Um, but that seems like a great conversation for another day. Um, I really want to see you in there, but you're not going to get a chance, right? You're stuck online like all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that's unfortunate. So maybe these plans will last until fall and then I'll see what's going to happen. I assume world series of poker is not going to be happening this year, even though I, I mean, this was going to be the first year where I was going to go move back out there and start living out, living out the, the summer. Yeah. Um, you got to believe just how bad it must be for as greedy an organization as the WSOP to cancel. That must have been painful. Oh, to the I, can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a picture, I think maybe from uh, 
Andrew Nimi's Instagram account where it was just all of the Vegas strip with the lights off. And I was, I, I, I had like a tear in my eye, right? Like Vegas in many ways, this feels like a second home to me. I've been there so often. And so to see it all shut down there, was very disturbing, right? It's like, it's just like when there was that mass shooting in Vegas, right? I wasn't there. I don't have a lot of friends who listen to country music, but you know, seeing the, the suffering of that city uh, inspires a little suffering in myself. Um, I think one thing that, oh, this is the, the difference that I'm going to make in my game, is that I'm going to start playing uh, multi-table tournaments, just because I think they're going to, at least for a little bit, be somewhat uh, intellectually interesting. I think that, obviously, in the earlier parts of the tournament, where uh, you shouldn't be playing any hands, my edge is very good, you know, playing 100, 200, 300 big blinds deep against many people. Um, but then learning the ins and outs of playing very, very perfect pre-flop, um, and then really understanding ideas like risk premium, which I didn't even understand until very recently in a very tangible and scientific way, and being able to like, you know, be able to run ICM models in my head with some degree of confidence is, you know, is something that I just can't do. I've played in a bunch of MTTs in my life and done like, okay, just kind of being solid. But being elite is completely different. And, you know, when right. I watch, uh, when I study scoops, okay, so this is something that I actually wanted to briefly touch on, is that most of my improvement comes from free material on YouTube, right? I don't study that many other coaches. I'm sure that I probably could learn much more from them if I, if I wanted to. Um, but I mostly just study high stakes replays and like scoop replays. Right, so like scoops are kind of interesting because they're open tournaments in the sense that you know there's often just a bunch of randoms who enter, but then the top final tables are just often the same guys, right? MC Chang, Henry Hecklin, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are players who have to one navigate these big open fields, which should be conceivably softer than you know full pro fields, and then you can also see that they have they they can't hide any of their technology. Right when you play a you know when you're watching Scoop Ten Thousand, and it's Linus versus Henry, neither of them are fucking around, right? And so very often as a coach, I have to gatekeep my own technology, right? Like the stuff I give away on YouTube is not as good as the stuff I give away to my paid uh, students, which is not as good as the stuff that I keep in my own brain that I just don't tell anyone, right? <laughs> but when you watch these really, really strong players playing at these really, really strong stakes, they don't have that opportunity to disguise their technology, right? You, when the board comes a four straight and you see a guy betting one third only, hey, maybe that should be telling you that when you're betting two thirds, something's up, right? And so when you see these people just forced to give away their technology, you are able to make very, very rapid gains. And this is also one of those like weird misnomers where people are thinking, oh, you know, the play at the very high stakes doesn't apply to me. In one sense, if you're looking at like the big, big pots, right? If you're only looking at the all-ins and you're like, wow, these bluffs were crazy. Yeah, that shit does not apply to you at all, right? But if you're looking at just like bet sizings, frequencies, just the kind of like the small nuts and bolts, oh my God, it's just unlimited libraries of free information to learn. And so for upcoming students, the race should be to understand the language of poker and the kind of you know internal conversation that line work is making and once you understand that kind of internal conversation then you can study um 
pro-level players very confidently and learn like a ton just from even like one or two replays. Um, and so, yeah, so I've been watching a bunch of like scoop replays and they're very interesting because I'm like, wow, I would not have done that. And so I think that'll be fun to dabble in. I played in a charity MTT uh, a couple weeks ago, right before the coronavirus with a like a 20K pool up top and I came second. And so I was just like, oh, <laughs> this isn't hard, even though obviously charity MTTs are going to be <laughs> Much, much softer than your, your normal field. I was just like, okay, cool. Just, uh, You're going on the tour now. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, it's been a great podcast. I hope you all are doing well. Um, thank you, Alvin, for coming on. And, thank you, Pat. I always appreciate it. Uh, we'll obviously share your information in the, the pod notes, but if you want to tell the listeners where to find you, that'd be great. Sure. My YouTube channel is Alvin Teaches Poker, and my personal website is OvernightMonster.com. Perfect. And with that, stay safe, and I will sign off now. Have a good day. Also, if I come back five more times, I get a free sub. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he's throwing the challenge out there. I thought three was, uh, I'm sure three is the most we've had uh, guests on, so five more times will be an epic uh, record. Thanks for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. Check out the scientific poker strategy while you are on the website. And um, once again, we appreciate uh, your listenership. Tell your friends. It's the Poker Zoo.